Welcome to the We as Citizens podcast. Here is your host, Christina Crowley. Welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Joel Nanby. He draws on 25 plus years of CEO experience of major corporations. He wrote the book Love Works, which integrates love, the verb, into an organization's leadership, ethos, and philosophy. Love Works has sold over 100,000 copies, and a new expanded version was released in March of 2020. Previously, Joel was Chief Executive Officer of SeaWorld and served as CEO of Hershant Enterprises. Additionally, he spent 20 years in general management in the auto industry. Joel is currently the non-executive chairman of Orange. In addition, Joel consults and speaks on Love Works, crisis leadership lessons, and other important leadership topics. Thank you for joining me, Joel. I'm proud to have you here. Thanks, Christina. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Excited to have a conversation. I gave a brief introduction about you, but for those who aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, absolutely. I, I grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan, so I'm a Michigander. I had a great family upbringing for the most part. Went to a private school called Albion to, to play sports and, and did play baseball and football there, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then from a professional standpoint, though, was a deferred admit to Harvard Business School. So that meant I had to work two years first before I went there. And that's why I went to General Motors. Uh, my automotive background was because they they actually had a program where they would pay for school. And I, I grew up very poor, so I had no resources to take on you know, that kind of money to go to Harvard. So I was very fortunate to get a scholarship from General Motors. And, and basically, in a nutshell, over the next 20 years was with both Saturn and Saab on the, on the automotive side. But I think that the operative point for this discussion and about Love Works is when I was in the auto industry in my 20s and 30s, I learned a lot more about what was wrong with leadership than what was right. And, and, and the auto industry was very autocratic. It was very fear-based. And as a believer in the faith I had, I felt like there had to be a better way to lead. And, and literally for 20 years, I was searching for role models of that and tried several starts and stops that we don't have time to go into. But it wasn't until I was recruited out of the auto industry to, to run Hershen Enterprises, which you mentioned, that's where I learned about love, the verb, and leading with love. And to me, the, the, for, for me, the angst went away. That is where I saw great leadership that treated people the way I thought they should be treated, but also demanded results and demanded performance, but also helped people get there. And that, that was the turning point for me. And so the, the rest of the 20 years was really living at, trying to either live that out or teach others that love can be an effective way to lead. I had never intended, honestly, to write a book. It, it happened because when I was at Hershey Entertainment, our company was on Undercover Boss, which is a, was a yeah. CBS reality show. And uh, so I was the CEO who went undercover. And... 20 million people saw that episode because we were we followed the NCAA tournaments and we were just inundated with, with requests for how do you get a culture like that? I wish we worked for a company like that. I wish there were more leaders in our company like what we saw on that show. And that's what prompted me, Christina, to write the book because it, I realized I wasn't the only one having this angst about we, we should demand more from leaders. We, we should have stronger leaders that are less 
concerned about themselves and more concerned about their employees and their enterprise. And that that's what led me to write it. And since then, I've either been trying to lead that way or I speak about it or I write about it. It's really been my life calling since I was exposed to it at Hershen. So from a professional standpoint, that's who I am. On a personal standpoint, I, I have a wonderful wife and uh, between us, we have five incredible children. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where the richness of life really is. But since we're talking about love works, that's the professional side. Yeah. And I think within the book, you, you detail the seven principles and they're, it, it's a wonderful book. I, I really enjoyed it. I dug in and listened to it and read it, Thank but you. you detail how being a leader, that you used it as a verb rather than an emotion. Yeah. And I, it kind of became apparent to me that most people don't differentiate a love in that manner. Tell us yeah. what really constitutes love as a verb. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Christina, because I, I would, if, if another way of asking that is what, why is it so misinterpreted? Why isn't it used more often? And you're right, it is a misperception. And, and although I go into the book, I'll, I'll give the highlights here that Ultimately, it's a language issue. In the English language, we only have one word, love, that encapsulates a lot of different relationships and, and approaches. Uh, I go, the Greeks actually have four different words for love. And one is eros, which that's the romantic love. That's what Americans think of love from the movies and TV. We think of romance or feelings. The, 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 the word I'm talking about is a Greek word called agape. That is a verb. It's how you treat people. It has nothing to do with how you feel about them. There's two other words. They have store, which is the love between a, a parent and a child, or phylos, which is brotherly love. So the Greeks had these four different words. When, when, in, the, when in the Bible, the Greeks, when they wrote the New Testament, and, and mostly Paul, uh, he wrote in Greek, when he talks about the love of Jesus, he's talking about agape, which is treating people a certain way. So any notion of a feeling should be thrown out here. It's really more about how you treat people on your team or in your life with this, these seven words, which patient, the seven words are patient, kind, trusting, truthful, uh, unselfish, forgiving, and dedicated. And so the whole premise is if we treat each other and treat our leaders according to these seven words, our, our cultures will thrive. And there's tons of data behind it, which we can go into if we have time. But to your point, why it's not accepted more, it's a misperception. And when people think of feelings, they think it's soft. They think that love is a soft thing. And boy, you can't, you can't come into business or leadership being soft or you'll get run over, or you won't get performance. Those are all misperceptions. Um, I have led both ways in my life, um, strictly by the numbers. At General Motors, if you didn't hit your numbers, you were out. And it was all driven by the numbers as opposed to being driven by, let's treat our customers right and our employees right and then the profits will take care of themselves. That's more love works and versus the fear-based numbers-driven leadership. I can tell you that it's harder. When I was at General Motors, it was actually easier to lead that way. It's harder to lead in the loving fashion because you have to take into consideration not only the impact on 
the numbers, but the impact on your folks, your, your employees, your, the, those you lead, as well as, of course, the customers. So um, a, a long answer to your question, but it's the fact that people misunderstand it. They think it's soft and it's all a language issue, not, not a reality issue. And it's coming from a place of more honesty when you are honest about, I know that in the Hershend Enterprises, you had a, oh, I can't remember the name of it now, a fund where you helped your employees. Yeah, share it they, forward, share it forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, share it forward, where people do stumble in life, people do have troubles in life, where they need a little bit of a hand up and, and your company embraced that. Yeah, we, we did. It, it's a great example of loving leadership, but also how everybody should rally around each other. Uh, in that program, uh, it, nothing happened unless the employees actually gave to it first. And you're talking a lot of seasonal employees, part-time employees, because this is the theme park business. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing is we had over 80% of our employees donate into it, 100% of leadership, but even 80% of frontline employees. And $1 given by the employees became $2 because the company would match one and then the owners would match one, the Hershens. And so we would have a pool of, let's call it, you know, a couple million dollars a year that would exclusively be used to help employees in need, whether they, they missed a house payment or they couldn't make their insurance payments or they didn't have insurance. This was before Obamacare, but the, 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 what happened was people just loved seeing the results of that program, which usually were anonymous, but we had great ways to communicate it. And it just created this upward spiral of positivity and helping each other that created an amazing culture. So that, that's just one example. Um, I, would, I would add to what you said, though. An- another misperception is that it's all about behavior in itself has to be in some ways measured. Um, There are actually a lot of processes and numbers behind this. Um, And I'll just give a few as an example. When you go into an organization and you measure their engagement of their employees, and this has been done by Gallup over the last 50 years, on average, it's only 30% engagement level, which means the employees are saying, I'm only basically a third productive. I'm only a third engaged. Only 30% give a five out of five that I'm really engaged in my work. That's a horrific figure. That's, that means most of our team members in this country are walking around half, um, half checked in and half checked out of work, which is not good. But when we, when we would go into organizations and we bought, I don't know, 20 some companies over the course of my time at Hershen and, and SeaWorld, most of these organizations we would take over or buy would be in this 30% category or less of engagement. And with the tools and the processes we put in place that some are explained in the book yeah. is we would take an engagement scores from 30% to 80 or even 90%, which is world-class I mean, Marriott, Apple, uh, those kind of companies get at those kind of engagement levels. And so to get there, we had to measure how employees felt about their leaders. Were their leaders really leading with love? We had to have behaviors laid out so people were trained in how to, how to lead and how to behave according to love. So 
it's very robust. And I wouldn't want anybody to think that it's, it's just a cliche. It's actually a system and a process that we saw turn around several companies. And I, I bring that up because most listeners who are cynical and probably you know, half of your listeners may yeah. buy in immediately and half are saying, I don't get this love thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying this so they know the numbers support it, even though for most of us, it's intuitive common sense. For others, it's not. And I, I can say it definitively works because I've I've lived in worlds with it, with it and worlds without love. And it's def- it definitely works. And in doing with the employee assistance, does that just bring more of a camaraderie, more of a caring for each other and in turn the company? Absolutely. Most organizations I've been part of, they have a giving component, which is great. They tend to focus on some ministry or nonprofit or cause outside the company. And I think the radical thought that, that I did bring to Hershen was let's start first with our own employees and, and, and make sure that our own team members are supported. Um, they're, they're paid a, a, a living wage. We were way ahead of, you know, we were way ahead of $15 minimum wage or we were and, and, or a living wage. Um, if people stayed with us in three year, for three years or longer, they pretty much had more than $15 an hour and a living wage. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you might look at our margins and say, all right, a cost of our employees slightly higher. But when, it, when you looked at our return on investment, we were equal to anybody else in our industry because our turnover was low yeah. and people were super engaged. So you're right. It just created this culture of love and reinforcement that, that people enjoyed being there. They were there to help each other and serve the customer because we were very frontline based, obviously in theme parks, you have to serve the customer and it resulted in great profitability. And in reading through this book, one thing that came to me was companies, I've worked for companies that do this and I've worked for companies that haven't and, and now I could put a name to it. Uh, <laughs> but I was also thinking that companies who don't lead with love, aren't they robbing Peter to pay Paul ultimately in the end? Well, I believe they are. Um, you know, Here's the truth. There are some there are some companies that don't lead this way, and they do they do very well. Um, but I would say not for the long haul. Uh, they may they they may do well in the short term, but the long sustaining businesses they have great cultures, and they have great cultures where they they do care about their people. They may be very demanding, and there's and I am too, and you have to be. Yeah. But there's a way to to be demanding and still leave people reinforced, encouraged. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a path we could go down. That's one of the words is kindness, where you, you want to you praise in public admonish in private, and you want to praise three or four times more than you admonish. That's just one example. But, but to your point, I think the, the people who want to build a sustaining long-term business I've never seen any company that does that, that doesn't in some way lead in this fashion. Um, another way to say it is, you know, any, any fool can come into a situation and focus on just profitability and boost profitability quickly. You cut costs, you cut employees that are needed for the long term, not for the short term, you, you jack your prices up. But over time, that's going to bite you and it's going to it's going to take your business down and so the only exception to the rule would be let's say 
I hate to say it, but private equity person, they, they, they may come in and flip real quickly, but they're not building a sustaining business and you, you can't get away with leading in a, in a strictly financial way for the long term. That's really powerful. One of my favorite quotes is from chapter 10. It's one thing to talk about values like leading with love, but it's another thing to deliver on those values, especially in tough times. And you went into a an already escalating tough time during the SeaWorld transition. And that was very public. I didn't know who you were at the time, but I knew of the situation. And ultimately, I'm one of those people in the end who went, wow, it turned out, it turned out well. Uh, there were some great compromises made there. So was your ability and experience to lead with love the catalyst for SeaWorld? And is that what brought it through that very public transition, in your opinion? Yeah, it, it is. Um, and I, I need to unpack that a little bit because I okay. also wouldn't want to give the impression um, that it all went well and that leading with love was... Uh, always smooth. And it's, a, it's, a, I think it's a, gr- I, uh, two of my favorite chapters in the, in the book of the new version are the last two, because they go so much into what didn't go well. Yeah. And, and I think most leaders and leadership books always talk about all the good things, but not, not the, the ugly things. I will tell you the things that worked in the SeaWorld transition were all connected to leading with love. Um, I'll give two examples. One, our employee engagement scores. When I when I got there, SeaWorld was under so much attack by the animal activists and the, the millennial generation had somewhat given up on working there because they perceived the company as being anti-animal, um, anti-doing the right thing, which could not be farther from the truth. But uh, Blackfish was very effective, albeit not that true. Um, it really hurt our reputation. And so we built back our employees' trust in the company by showing them all the great things SeaWorld did for animal activism and also just the way we treated our own animals, which is incredible. Another good example, not just on the employee side, but is how we went uh, and tried to address our quote-unquote enemy. Um, And that's detailed pretty well in the book, but we had two major enemies out there. One was PETA and one was the Humane Society of the United States. PETA was much more of a radical organization. Humane Society was much, I would call them moderate, but also I liked their practices. They would use legislation, doing it the right way versus terrorism events against your organization. And what happened there in a nutshell is both organizations were trained to dislike each other. SeaWorld didn't like Humane Society, Humane Society didn't like SeaWorld. And we were were trained as I came in, I was trained not to trust them, don't like them, Uh, they are against us, so don't go there. Well, what happened is a a congressman from California, John Campbell, who uh, US congressman, he knew Wayne Paselli, the CEO of of um, the Humane Society from some of his work on an animal rights caucus, basically. And then John knew me from the auto industry. He was a a dealer under when I was CEO of Saab North America. We got to know each other really well and Saturn. So he put us together because he trusted both of us. And he put us on a three-way call and said, you can trust each other. We started meeting secretly, just us two, because our organizations would not have supported it. And long story short, over a period of time, we actually built a friendship. And as 
anyone does who tries to sit down with an adversary, you find you have a lot more in common than you think. We knew where we disagreed, but we, we started focusing on where we agreed. You know, the plight of animals, those plights are bigger than any organization, or any one government can solve, and you have to have collaboration. So as we were being forced into a corner, because at the same time, SeaWorld was going to be legislated out of business, basically, in California by outlawing the breeding of killer whales. And that's a, a long story. But we knew this was coming in California. So we had to make a decision as a board. Do we make the decision just for California or also for our other parks? We decided it was a systemic issue. If it happens in California, it's going to move east. We need to make some tough decisions about the breeding of killer whales. Well, when we made this announcement, we were able, Wayne from, from the Humane Society was able to support us. And we went on air together. We went on all the talk shows and making the announcement. And he was able to say, I know the CEO and I know this organization and they are doing the right thing. They're making the right move. Because, and therefore, literally almost overnight, our ratings as a company flip-flop from being only 35% trustworthy to 60 to 70% trustworthy. And it's because we made these tough decisions. And we wouldn't have done that without the principles of leading with love and trying to work out this relationship with one of our adversaries. Those were two examples of where it went really well. At the same time, and I detail in the book, I had lots of failure. Um, I had, you know, personally, um, I can't, I still can't even talk about it. I went through a, a long-term marriage, failed, a lot of it was self-induced. Some of it was just the stress of being at SeaWorld. And it was literally 20 hours a day, seven days a week. I also had an activist investor, um, mm -hmm. separate from the animal activist. This was a board member who created a lot of dysfunction and toxicity on the board. And admittedly, because of some of the pressures I was under, I think the personal issues going on, I did not handle the situation like I normally would have a lot of anger, a lot of screaming matches. Um, you know, you don't last long when you call a member of your board, a liar in, in, in front of other board members, which I did because I was frustrated and, and he was lying, but I didn't handle it in the way I could have. And that's part of what led to my departure. It was, it was, it was mutual, but um, it wasn't on my timing, but it was mutual. Let's put it that way. And uh, I, I, I want to make it clear. I had many failures in that. And I think no one can hold themselves accountable to always being perfect because we're not. Yeah. We just have to admit our mistakes, yeah. um, see them and, and try to learn from them and move forward. Um, and I'll just make one more comment on it and then I'll shut up. I think what, what so many people do in life is we, sometimes we make mistakes, big ones, and it causes us to, to retreat and go into a hole and, and dig ourselves a hole. Um, I, I can say luckily with, with my wife and, and good therapy, I was able to learn from the mistakes I made and move forward in a very, very positive direction and feel comfortable to be able to continue to share even some of the failures uh, that I went through at SeaWorld. So everyone's gonna make mistakes. The important thing is to learn from them and move forward. But I would still say love in the end worked at SeaWorld. Uh, I just wish I had been given a little bit more time to see it all through. Sure.
And I think in reading the book, you did what you could with a very, very difficult situation. And I enjoyed that you were very honest and in taking the responsibility for your leadership, where you failed in your leadership, because it's human. We, we fail, we do make mistakes. And I think that makes it a richer book that you're able to, to talk about it in depth like you did, as you did. I don't know that I would be able to do that, even though I know I'm human and I make a lot of mistakes. And in learning from that experience, it, it also tied together a lot of what I learned earlier in your book about listening and trust and how they're intertwined. And my, one of my favorite stories was your story about Miss Prey. <laughs> and that early on, and, and it really made me look at myself and go, wow, maybe I don't listen so well, but tell us about, tell us a little bit about that if you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, one of the, uh, one of the words is to be trusting and in, in the book and um, one, the way the, the ultimate point, and then I'll tell the Mr. Prey story is so many leaders are autocratic and they only trust their own judgment and therefore they want to control everything. And the biggest fault I see in most leaders who can't run large organizations and scale is because they want to micromanage yep. every decision. Mm -hmm. The way I learned that was Miss Prey. And I was a seventh grader in uh, way back at Woodrow Junior High School in Battle Creek. And uh, there were parent-teacher conferences that uh, are usually just the parent and the teacher. Well, I was invited to go to mine with my mom. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be bestowed upon some great award, like perfect attendance. Or So I sit down and Miss Prey, I'll never forget it. It's just like yesterday. She had really tight white hair, all perfect. And she always looked you know, just very, very anal, but very perfect looking in her white hair, 70 some years old. And she said, Mrs. Mamby, I wanted your son here because, you know, I, I have witnessed that he has great talent. He's a natural leader and he, he could go great places, but he will be limited to his development in his development. If he doesn't learn to trust other people. And she gave example after example where even when I wasn't put in charge, I would take charge and I would micromanage in projects or on the kickball team. I would always take over and not let people do their jobs. And, it, and she said, this will hold Joel back. And I learned a very valuable lesson from that about, you know, it's, it's fine to have your opinion, but if you want to hire and keep great people, you must let them do their jobs and let them learn from their mistakes. And, and in saying that, there's always certain things that you have to keep control of. There's certain decisions that only you should make in whatever leadership position you're in, but those should be fewer rather than more. And the fewer you have, I think the stronger leader you have, which is counterintuitive to what most people think. But all that came from Miss Prey and how to trust other people. And what we talk about in the book is, you know, it comes right, even coming down to anal analyzing and defining how decisions are made in the organization so that it's really clear who does what. And then you know when you're overstepping your bounds. And it's a very, very important principle that what I have seen is most people leave organizations because of their boss, not the company. And they usually leave their boss because they don't feel trusted. I think that's almost always the situation. So it's a very, very important principle. And it's one of the seven words uh, of love in the book. 
Yeah, and, and a great example to go with it. And and you show, you go forth throughout the book carrying those lessons forward with you. It's 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 an amazing lesson in there. And if you don't mind, my, yeah, my favorite ahead. my favorite story is probably in the kindness one. Wow. The kindness word is my mother who taught me. Um, and it was, we were walking to a football banquet and some freshman football players walked by and I was a senior, you know, quarterback, blah, blah. So people knew kind of who I was because they watched me play. And these freshmen said hi to me and I kind of blew them off because I was talking to my mom and she whipped me around the corner and she pointed her little finger in my chest. She said, you listen to me, young man, anytime you come into contact with anybody, you have an ability to make their day better or make their day worse. And I don't think you made their day better. And so she, you know, I didn't say it in the book, but I literally went back and apologized to those kids at the banquet and talked to them for a while. But she was right in that we're so wrapped up in ourselves that kindness goes a long way. And it doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable, but there's a way to hold people accountable without destroying their dignity. And that is something my mom taught me, but also Jack Kirshen taught me a great deal. Yeah, you always remember how people made you feel. Always, yeah, always. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in your years of being a leader to thousands of people carrying love forward and practicing love as a verb, you know, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is in having that knowledge and not that I'm naive, but why at times is it just as seemingly straightforward to choose love? But people choose the opposite. Do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? <laughs> well, we could talk about that for like three <laughs> hours because that's that's the essence of mankind right yeah. now yeah. that I don't understand it either, Christina. You know, it, even if you're, you're not, a, most a lot of people aren't Christians, but if you're a, a Buddhist, a, a agnostic, um, a Muslim, any major religion talks about loving and caring for other people. Yeah. And even if you're an atheist, you, you generally know that's how people should be treated. Yeah. I just think in today's world, it is so um, caustic and it, it is so toxic. And it all comes down to leadership. And I'm sorry, but that, that's just the case. And I don't want to get political, but you can pick your poison, whether it's Donald Trump and the way he was so antagonistic in his tweets or Nancy Pelosi and, and how antagonistic she is to, to conservatives and lumping all Republicans into a bad category. Yeah. You go either way you want. Um, for some reason, people just feel like we have to be negative. And I think we've lost the ability in our society mm -hmm. to dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, we are monologuing hate and negativity. And it's, we label each other, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, progressive or socialist, um, you name it. And we, we have a label that's becoming so caustic and so negative. It's very discouraging. And it's part of the reason, uh, Christina, that I'm willing to always talk about this subject. I, I speak on it. I, Because not only do I believe as a business leader, we need to be this way, but just as a family leader, as a friend, as a social leader, a, pol a political leader, we need more of this or our, our world is not headed in a very strong direction right now. Um, we have to be able to disagree with civility. Um, I, I actually don't think unity 
other than unity, unity, as like you said, unity as citizens of the earth, mm -hmm. which is your premise, yeah. citizens of the United States, another premise we can have unity there, but we're not going to have unity on the specifics of how to get there. Therefore, we must disagree in a civil manner and come to the best solutions, which means we have to listen to each other and we have to hear each other out. And that is more and more a lost art due to social media and the way we have to have everything in you know 29 words or less. It just, you know, comp complicated problems and complicated issues are not solved easily and they're not solved on Twitter and they're not solved on Facebook. They're solved with dialogue of smart people coming together trying to solve issues. And I just wish we had better examples of it because yeah. I don't yeah. see it yeah. right now. It's really hard to find. It, it definitely is. And do you think it's, it is leadership. So is it stop looking for other people to find it and just be it in yourself? It starts there, Christina, right? We all, uh, there's uh, that great addict and I don't know, I don't, I can't quote it, but we all start out wanting to change the world. And by the time we're in our sixties, we're just trying to change ourselves. And um, it is hard because we all make mistakes. And sometimes I, you know, I've made my mistakes. So do yeah. I, do I have the courage to still speak about it? Yes, I do. Um, I wish I had the answer as to why our world's headed that way, mm -hmm. but I do think it can change because I think naturally it's what people want to do and they just need to see it modeled. And that's like, when I went back to my opening comments about 20 years, I was in angst knowing there were better ways to leave. I didn't see it in the auto industry much, if at all today, I've seen it. And I'm passionate about it because I've seen it. And I think people in politics need to see a leader who, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, Republicans and Democrats did work together and dialogue more. Um, but it, it's just, it's a lost art right now. And we need yeah. to see somebody step up and do it differently. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think your book, it's great for leaders and in industry, even in personally. There's a lot of those things that can be taken into people's everyday lives to make them well, better people. I'm glad you said, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, yeah. it is a leadership book because that's where I have the most credibility, but the principles apply whether you're yeah. a parent or you're leading a, a, a two-person team mm -hmm. um, or whatever you do in life, yeah. the, the love principles, if you understand them and the agape verb version, it, it'll change your life. And um, I'm with you. I wish more people uh, felt that way. Yeah. And because I think that these principles, they're not political. They're not weak. They mm -hmm. are, they're real strength and they're not easy. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I think, try, try forgiving. Forgiving oh. is one of the words. I mean, forgiving is most ended relationships yeah. are through lack of forgiveness. Yeah. That there's nothing easy about it, yeah. but you can't be a great leader and not have the ability to forgive. Forgiveness is, yeah. It, it, Including really forgiving yourself. I mean, yeah. for me, what I went through, what I learned is forgiving myself was the hardest part. Um, so I, I agree with you. It's not easy, but it's not an excuse for not doing it. I think being honest is really difficult for people. Being just, just honest and with accepting, not caring about what people think is, is really difficult. And that's part of the hardness of it. It is. And, uh, yeah, truthfulness, truthfulness is, is one of the words. And if you ask me what's the one I struggle with the most, it would be truthfulness, not 
not, you know, cheating or not cheating and on financials or something that obviously that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being truthful to other people about their performance levels or even honest with ourselves Mm -hmm. about our own lack of performance or lack of consistency and being able to talk about it. You know, I, I know it's really working when my own team members who, who work for me come to me and confront me on certain values that I, I didn't or didn't adhere to, which was usually lack of patience, you know, on, on certain people publicly. But yeah, it's being truthful is probably the hardest of it all, hardest word of all. Yep. Yep. Truthful and forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe forgiveness, maybe truthfulness, but yeah. there's nothing easy about it, but it leads to a much more, uh, I think, content and peaceful life while you're trying to, to achieve. Because in the end of the day, I think, you know, we talk in the book, we talk about do goals and be goals, yeah. right? The, the, the seven words of love are the be goals. It's what type of leader do I want to be? Mm-hmm. The do goals everyone has to do in life or business. You have to sell something or create revenue and more of it or, or profitability. I don't think life is really about the do goals. It's about the be goals. It's about yes. who we want to be and, and, and living to that. It's really the only way we can truly be content, I think, is living consistently to those values the best we can. Yeah. And I love the book. And and I could talk and talk and talk about the book more with you, but we're kind of running out of time. We're coming down to our last few minutes. I have just a couple of questions for you. You've had an extraordinary career. Is there a favorite part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... The favorite part is really the, the the seeing others succeed and the friendships I've developed. If there was one, if you were asking which company, it would have to be Hershen because that's where Jack and Pete Hershen taught me these principles. And I felt so consistently supported by the board and the owners in those principles. Everywhere else I worked, there were there were good parts of it, but I never felt the support like I had at, at Hershen Entertainment. And tell us just a little bit about Orange. I know that that's what you're, uh, you know, you've done for the past 20 years. So Orange is a very, uh, it's a large nonprofit and Reggie Joyner is the CEO and all credit to him. I've been chairman since he and I started it together, meaning he had the vision. I found the money to get it started and I've been chairman ever since he's been CEO ever since. But what Orange means is, um, Yellow is the light of the church and red is the heart of the home. And if you combine red and yellow, it creates the color orange. And the whole principle is that most most churches in teaching their teaching love, they do it independent of the parents and the parents aren't involved. So our whole strategy is that we show parents what's being taught in church curriculum. And we're the, one of the largest curriculum providers in the world, uh, 42 countries, I think uh, over 10,000 church partners. It's very strategic and, and it's, it's an incredible, incredible product. Very uh, with it, it's very cool and relevant and quality levels very high. And that's all credit, credit to Reggie. Um, but we're also not only in the curriculum side, we're also in the training and development side. So we help leaders understand this strategy the orange strategy and there's lots to it that we don't have time to go into but um it's anybody can go to thinkorange.com and it it gives an overview of of the organization but i'm very blessed to be part Mm of it well thank you so much for your time today it's been a pleasure speaking with you love the book i can't rave about it enough 
<laughs> Thank you. And yeah, people can buy it on Amazon or, yeah. or if they go to my website, which is joelmanby.com, mm-hmm. uh, they'll pay about the same, but they get a, a video series as well on leading through crisis, which certainly people need right now. And uh, mm-hmm. there's lots of blog information there. If people want more of what I'm talking about here, it's all on joelmanby.com. But I really appreciate this time. Um, I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because we need to see ourselves as citizens with common love of each mm-hmm. other versus just pointing out all the differences yeah. and all the problems. Um, yeah. We have problems, but we got to work yeah. on them together. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The We as Citizens podcast, because conversation matters.